All right. I have a feeling if I don't break this up, it's just going to continue. So uh, I'm going to be the bad guy. It's great to see you guys greet one another this morning. And Jared kind of blew, blew past this a little bit, but you may have caught it. He has a prayer mentor for every student in the student ministry, sixth grade through college. And that's what some of those adults that were up here uh, this morning represented. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I need a prayer mentor. So um, I'm not necessarily taking applications, but just let's pray for one another in the way, just in an intentional way, like we've been praying for these students. Uh, Students, we are committed to to praying for you as you kind of move through this rite of passage from high school into whatever next step it is that you have. And our com- what we're asking for you to commit is just to, just to come back and, and let us know what's going on in your life and where God is leading you and taking you and how he's bringing himself glory through what it is uh, he's doing in you. So anyway, we appreciate our seniors and we're excited for them. I think I shared with you some time ago that Mandy and I mainly Mandy, I should say, we have entered into this new adventure. We've planted a garden, and you're like, how is that an adventure? Uh, You know, you need to get out more if that's an adventure, and that's probably true. But with the help of a huge load of soil from Lloyd Ediger and some tips from basically every gardening website on the internet, we've built this garden. And those of you who farm or maybe you've gardened for a while, you're going to laugh at this, but it's quite a thrill to watch this whole thing work, uh, to plant seeds and then see stuff sprout up for the, for the stuff to actually grow. It's really quite a thing. It's sort of like having kids, but lots cheaper. It's really good. Uh, anyway, we've, we've already started eating spinach and lettuce, which is wonderful. We might be picking some onions soon, and it really is something to put a seed in the ground, have it grow, and then eat its fruit. And I know it's early yet. We'll probably end up really frustrated with the whole thing. But at this point, we're just kind of living this composting, organic, non-GMO dream. It's been great. And I bring that up because seed growth, essentially gardening, directly relates to our passage for today. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. We're back in the fourth chapter of Mark. We stepped away from our study of Mark for a couple of weeks, but now we come back to this great gospel and and in the middle of the fourth chapter, we find ourselves studying the first of two extended teaching sections in the book. The other large block of teaching is found in chapter 13. It's the Olivet Discourse. But in this chapter, starting with the parable of the soils, Mark records a section of Jesus' teaching that consists of mostly parables. And by design of the Lord Jesus, these parables are great for those with ears to hear. But they're sort of a confusing mess for everybody else. For those willing to listen... These parables are very understandable, enlightening teaching. For those who have condemned Jesus, this teaching confounds them and is likewise condemning of them. And the particular parables in front of us today are called the parables of the kingdom. So there are these stories, these illustrations, these word pictures that are there to help the hearers understand the nature and the character of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been preaching and teaching about this kingdom ever since he came on the scene. In fact, John the Baptist in front of him had come before Jesus to prepare the way for the kingdom. And now that the kingdom is breaking into history, 
Jesus wants his disciples to have a clear understanding of it. And that's what he begins to give them here. So if you're not already in Mark chapter 4, turn there now. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And he, he being Jesus, he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. So we see here Jesus gives us an explanation of the kingdom of God, and he does, he gives it to us in two dimensions. Now there are definitely more than two dimensions to the kingdom of God, but here Jesus gives us two. They are the kingdom of God that's in you, So that's the first dimension. And then the second dimension, the kingdom of God in the world. So there's your outline for the sermon. Nine verses, two parables, the kingdom of God in you, the kingdom of God in the world. And in both of these parables, what's striking is that the kingdom of God is not compared to lightning bolts or great riches or awesome power. It's compared to something as banal and as common as a seed. So let's look at this closely. First dimension, the kingdom of God in you, beginning in verse 26. Verse 26, we have this image of a sower going out to scatter seeds, sort of a repeat of verse 3. But unlike the parable of the soils, where the message was primarily about the soils, this parable is primarily about the seed. This parable is unique to the gospel of Mark, and it takes us into the wonderful mystery of, of the seed. How on earth do we get a corn stalk from a tiny seed? A head of wheat from a seed? An apple tree or an an oak tree from a seed? How could something so small produce something with such significance? We don't often do this sort of thing, but take a look at this time-lapse video that I ran across this week. Um, These are, are corn a few corn seeds germinating, taking root, and growing. And there might be an ad that pops up. I'm not in control of that, so forgive me. It's YouTube. At grocery stores here again. Pardon the bluegrass music for those of you that, uh, that rubs you the wrong way. But in that video, we have on display at least a couple of the stages described in these verses. The seed has been sown because, first of all, we can see that it's in the dirt. 
Then a blade shoots up, then the ear, and if the video would have gone on, we'd seen grain in the ear, and then maybe someone harvests the grain. It's just kind of pretty cool stuff. But what Jesus is doing here, he isn't just explaining how agriculture works, like some sort of first century YouTube video. He's describing spiritual realities. He's explaining what happens in you when God's rule and God's reign breaks into your life. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's God's rule and God's reign. You might write that down. God's rule and God's reign. That's the kingdom of God. And when God's reign begins to take hold of the individual, there are three stages to that inbreaking. They're described here as the blade, the ear, and the full grain in the ear. So let's look at first the blade. When a blade shoots out of the ground, what you essentially have is life where there was no life. And that's exactly what happens to the believer when the Spirit regenerates your heart. You see life where there was no life. You need to think about it this way, okay? Think about it like this. A seed is a dead thing. In fact, a germinating seed, like we just saw, is actually the death of that seed. Its existence is over. It's done. But new life has sprung up through its death. You see the spiritual imagery there? It's pretty vivid. And this is no doubt what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans 6 when he said, You as a believer, you are now dead to sin, but you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or as he said in the same chapter, he writes, If we have been planted with Christ in his death, we shall also be like him in his resurrection. Christians are people in which life has been born out of death, just like a seed. So you put a seed in the right soil with the right amount of water, some sunlight, you wait a few days, and you get a little shoot, a blade. And those first blades are pretty exciting, are they not? Back to my wife's garden. She did some initial outdoor planting, but most of, of what is now outside, she started inside. We had this little greenhouse operation underneath the bay window of our living room. Some of you can relate to this. And first-time garden nerds that we are, we would sort of celebrate every seed that shot up, every little blade, every one of them. And, and when we got to thinking, oh, you know, the peppers aren't going to sprout, they'd sprout. Or, oh, the, the cucumber isn't going to sprout, it would sprout. And the sight of these initial sprouts, you know, would be greeted with a high five or some sort of little mini celebration. Again, we're kind of nerds, we're new at this, it's, it's, it's working. But when the rule and reign of God breaks into someone's life, when it breaks in through the hearing of the gospel, there begins to be life where there was no life. And it's observable and wonderful, and it's to be celebrated. For those who have sown the seed of the gospel, have sown it into someone who is dead in their sins, when they see that person respond in faith, it's an unmistakable thing. There's spiritual interest and vitality where there had been hostility or ambivalence. It's an exciting thing. But there's a second stage in the text. It's the ear. And the ear represents those confirming signs of grace in a believer's life that, that prove that life in them is from God and God alone. When the ear of a plant develops, it distinguishes what kind of plant it is. A leaf of spinach distinguishes it from a leaf of lettuce. The ear from a squash plant distinguishes it from a tomato. The ears in the life of the believer are those distinguishing marks 
that prove that it is in fact God's rule and reign that has broken into their life, that the kingdom has established authority in their life. What are some of those distinguishing marks or, or, or what are some of those leaves? They love God's word. They love God's people. They regularly repent of their sin. They are generous. They love truth. They're marked with, with humility and brokenness and sacrifice and on and on we could go. By the look of the ear, the type of plant can be identified. And the exact same thing needs to be true of your life. If God's rule has come into your life, it will be evident that you belong to him. Evident that Jesus is your king. Obvious that the spirit rules over you because like the ear of a plant, your life will take a certain shape. It will be a certain color. It will be a distinguishable thing. Sort of like canola this time of year. I drive around this area and I have no idea what the different farms are growing. You know, most of the time I can't distinguish Milo from wheat from whatever else. I'm totally clueless. But I do know canola, right? It's yellow flower. It's, it's unmistakable. So it must be with the Christian. You cannot be disguised or confused for anything but a believer in Jesus. And that will show itself, not just in your initial blade, but in your leaf. Third stage, the full grain in the ear. The kingdom reign of God in the life of the believer, will ultimately bear fruit. It will ultimately be a life of produce. Now, there are people sitting in church that can have the appearance of spiritual life. For decades, they might occupy the pew of a church, listen to gospel preaching, even participate in the life of a congregation. The leaves of their life are apparently that of a believer, but the true mark, Jesus says here, of someone giving over, given over to the work of the kingdom is a life that bears fruit. It's a life that multiplies itself. Meaning by its work and witness, others come to know Jesus Christ. If the ear does not produce grain, it's no more useful than chaff. It won't be harvested. It's not worth anything. The believer who is reigned by Christ in his kingdom, it will bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of evangelism. So those are the stages. From, from dead seed to fruit-bearing plant. And if you're here this morning you're likely in the midst of one of those stages. And what you need to know is even though the illustration in this parable, like I said, is sort of banal and common and everyday, if God has pierced you with his word of truth, then the life that he's springing up in you is nothing short of miraculous. Moving things from death to life is the foundational miracle of Christianity. And its miraculous nature is actually underscored in this passage. Look at verse 27. The one who scatters the seed sleeps and rises, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He knows not how. How are miracles accomplished? I have no idea. I know not how. Either do you. That's what makes it a miracle. It cannot be explained so what we see here is there would be no harvest if there was no seed sown. It's, as, it's as, as J.C. Ryle put it. He said, the earth is a mother of weeds, not wheat. 
there has to be seed sown for there to be a crop. But the burning question is, how does it all really happen? How does the seed turn into a plant? You know, the the wisest farmer among us can't explain all that takes place in a grain of seed once he has sown it. He can watch a video of it like we just did. He knows the broad fact that unless he puts it into the soil and covers it up, there, there will not be an ear of corn to harvest. But he cannot command the prosperity of each grain. He can't fully explain why some seeds come up and others don't. He can't predict the minute when life will begin to show itself. He cannot define even what that life is. And this is where I need to park for just a second because the point being made here is huge. The miraculous mystery of a germinating seed is a key point in this passage. And you must remember that these disciples that Jesus is preaching to, they will eventually be ordered to go out and sow the word of God, to let their light shine, to preach the kingdom of God, just as Jesus has preached the kingdom of God. And what they need to know as they go out and do this work is that the results of the work are not in their hands. Salvation is not theirs to accomplish. That's the underlying message of the parable. It's a simple, simple parable. Nobody would miss the meaning. The farmer plants, and then he goes to bed. And outside of maybe praying for rain, he can't really do anything but wait until the harvest. He plays no role in the growth of the crop. That's the point. So the sphere of salvation, the reign of God over the hearts of those who believe... Our role in that is like a farmer who plants the seed and then goes home and goes to bed. We only can do what we can do. Some of you have unbelieving friends or relatives, and you've sown the seed of the gospel, and now you're just waiting. You've done what you can do, and maybe you keep doing it, and that's great, but you don't need to live your life in a panic over it. You don't need to stay awake 24 hours a day. You don't need to wring your hands or get manipulative. Go to bed. Plant the seed. Shine the light. Go to bed. You're not responsible for what happens. God is. When I preach, I know that all I can do is speak the truth. I can't manage. I can't take care of the results. I can't give life. God's saving work is a mystery. The only human act is to plant the seed and wait. It's all of God. 1 Corinthians 3 says, God gives the increase, meaning life and growth is a divine operation. Listen to it this way. This is what John MacArthur writes. He says, no human being contributes to the regeneration, conversion, justification, salvation process. All we can do is tell the truth. The seed is potent The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The soil, when prepared by God, will receive it, and it's God who makes it grow. No human being, no matter how persuasive, no matter how clever, can save anyone. All we can do is give the truth. We can't change hearts. We can't produce life from dead people. That's something the Lord alone does. I love verse 28 as it highlights this very idea. It says, The soil produces crops by itself. By itself. It's it's, it's just one word in the Greek. It's the word automate, from which we get the English word automatically. How encouraging is that? Spiritual conversion, new birth, the whole process is divinely automated. 
You can't start it and you can't stop it. And once it starts, it goes to the full. All you can do is be there to enjoy the harvest. Think about your own experience with Christ. You didn't come to faith because you were smarter. You didn't come to faith because you were better. You didn't come because you were morally more responsible. No way. None of those things. Fact of the matter is, a divine work of grace began on your heart. It worked on your heart. It, it divinely automated your heart to kill your old man and bring up new life. That's how it happened. Not because you're better, not because you're more pulled together, not because you've got really a a spiritual mind or a high spiritual acumen. No, it's because God in his grace chose to save you and give you a heart to believe. That's how it happened. And that should just just humble each and every one of us in in this room. It's not because of me and my uprightness. It's because of God and his mercy. He brought about salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah 2.9 tells us. So that's the first dimension, the kingdom of God breaking in you. Now the second dimension is the kingdom of God in the world, beginning in verse 30. And the seed motif continues in this section. But here, a particular kind of seed is likened to the kingdom of God. It's a mustard seed which a mustard seed is the size of a grain of sand. I can't even tell you how how big it is. And to the audience hearing these words from Jesus, it would have been the smallest seed that they knew of. And what's amazing about a mustard seed is proportionately, there was nothing that they planted that started that small and grew so large. A mustard plant or a mustard tree would be up to 15 feet high, about six feet in diameter, a massive thing to come out of a seed the size of a grain of sand. So what you started with and what you ended with were two very different things, which is a perfect parable for how the kingdom of God would grow in the world and grow throughout history. And again, there's three stages expressed here as well. First, God's kingdom starts small. Think about this. How did our king come into the world? He came as a baby born in a manger, born to a peasant woman, a child without riches or armies or attendance or power. As he grew, who were the men that the king gathered around himself and appointed as his apostles? They were not theologians or magistrates. They they were fishermen and publicans and men of like occupations, really the most unlikely people imaginable to shake the world up. What was the last public act of the earthly ministry of, of our great king and his kingdom? He was crucified. He was killed between two thieves. He'd been forsaken by nearly all his disciples. One betrayed him. One denied him. He was was murdered. He was executed. What was the teaching that went forth from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? It was the gospel. A teaching which was, to the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the the Greeks, it was foolishness. It was a proclamation that the king of all nations, the Lord of the universe, had been killed, been put to death on a cross. Yet somehow, his death offered life to the world. In all this, we see no real potential. The emblem of a mustard seed being fulfilled to the very 
letter. To the eyes of man, the beginning of the visible church was insignificant and powerless and small. But the second stage, starting with Pentecost, it started to grow up. Just as verse 32 spells out, it grew up. Almost spontaneously, the church, God's visible kingdom on earth, began to grow. In Acts 2, we read of 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4.4 estimates that 5,000 men in Jerusalem confessed to be Christians. By Acts 21, about the sixth decade of the first century, it says many thousands in Jerusalem believed. Moved through the first century, and the church had already spread to North Africa and Asia Minor and Greece and Rome and the fringes of Western Europe, not to mention as far east as India. In 300 years' time, so by the start of the 4th century A.D., there would be 6 million Christians on the earth, all from one man and 12 disciples. It grew up. Then Rome would legalize Christianity, eventually endorse Christianity, and the faith would spread throughout the world. Which brings us to the third stage. The kingdom that grew from a mustard seed of beginnings would grow large. Jesus is saying this kingdom is going to grow massive, massively out of proportion to the size of its beginnings. And this is, the, this is a prophecy of the triumphant growth of the church through history. And notice the reference to the birds nesting in its shade. This is taken out of Ezekiel chapter 17. And in Ezekiel six, or 17, excuse me, you have a messianic prophecy that says, under the rule of Messiah, nations will come to salvation. And the nations are pictured as birds coming to lodge in a tree of blessing. So the idea of birds nesting in its branches, it's borrowed right out of Ezekiel. And the birds are representative of the nations. In other words, this kingdom is going to expand. And not only will Israel be a part of it, but all the nations of the world will be a part of it as well. So you got these few guys. They're sitting in a boat in Galilee. And they're being told that the nations of the world are going to submit to the teaching of the man standing in front of them. And they, they're the ones that are actually going to be the deliverers of that teaching. And if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you'll find that gathered around the throne of God in heaven are what? There are people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Stunning, stunning prophecy being spoken here. Christianity today is the largest religious expression in the world. And it's unique. It's unique in that it has no fixed language. It has no fixed center of power, no geographic headquarters, no required cultural expression. It has transcended location and culture and language for 2,000 years. Its unofficial center of influence was maybe originally Jerusalem, but then it moved to Antioch and then throughout Asia Minor. Then as it moved into Europe, Christianity was the predominant force in shaping all of Western civilization. Its center of influence eventually moved to America. And now if you're trying to find, now if you're looking for the world's greatest concentration of Christians, you would not find it in this country. You'd begin to look south and east to Africa South America to China. I need to tell you guys, have no fear. Have no fear. You, you may think Christianity is weakening. 
You may look around our country and think the church has lost the fight, that we are now a post-Christian country and the, and the kingdom is no longer advancing. And if your vision is very short-sighted, you might be right. Because every year in Europe and North America, 2.7 million church attendees cease to be practicing Christians. That's 7,600 people a day that just opt out. In Africa, however, in Africa, the number of new believers in Jesus is estimated at 23,000 a day. 23,000 being added to the church every day. The kingdom keeps expanding. The birds keep nesting. Pay attention to places like China. China may be a communist country, and Christians are certainly persecuted there. The church is certainly suppressed to a degree. But experts are telling us that in 15 years, in less than a generation, China will be the world's largest Christian nation, if not already. Just last week, I read in the Examiner an article. The headline says there, China on course to become world's most Christian nation within 15 years. One paragraph in that article said, by 2030, China's total Christian population, including Catholics, would exceed 247 million, placing it above Mexico, Brazil, and the United States as the largest Christian nation in the world. A professor from Purdue University, in the article, he was quoted as saying this about China, Mao thought he could eliminate religion. He thought he had accomplished this. It's ironic, he didn't. He actually failed completely. The kingdom is expanding. And maybe you think, oh, those are just statistics about people that, remember, just coming into the church, they're just sort of counting heads. No, take South Korea for an example. In 1980, South Korea sent out 100 missionaries. In 2006, they sent out over 19,000 missionaries. That's 26 years. Exponential missionary growth. And it's not just pew sitters that join the mission field. It's people bearing fruit. Examples of the way the kingdom of God works. It started small, it grew up, and it's the largest, most enduring kingdom on the planet. The kingdom of God. Jesus was absolutely right. And if you believe and trust in him, you are a citizen in that kingdom. It will not be overthrown. I'll conclude just highlighting verse 34. Verse 34. Jesus, he's been speaking to the crowds, but now he centers in on the disciples. Privately to his own disciples, it says, Jesus explained everything about the parables. He explained everything. Can't you just see these guys, their eyes just widening as they come to understand what it exactly is they've been recruited into? Surely disbelief was, was, was trying to overcome them. But yet the king was speaking these words authoritatively. He was speaking them into their hearts. They knew they were about to be a part of something that was so much bigger than themselves. But really, out of this last verse, the thing that I want to highlight is this. As Jesus brings these guys in and begins to speak to them privately, it takes a relationship to Jesus to understand the kingdom. These guys, these disciples... They're in relationship to Jesus. 
And though these parables were confounding the religious leaders and the scribes and many of those who were, who were looking on to Jesus' teaching ministry, the disciples, things were starting to click. Things were starting to, un- they were starting to understand. And, and they, were, they were very dense, as I've pointed out, and they'll, and they'll remain that way through the Gospels. But as the resurrection happens, and as the Spirit descends, they're going to recognize even more, they're going to understand to a greater extent the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And it's because they're in relationship to him. You need to be in relationship to Jesus to take in his word and to understand it. And if you've never given your heart, if you've never transferred your trust to Jesus Christ, I just encourage you to do that today. We're going to take communion here in a little bit. And and the gospel is expressed in these elements. And maybe I've done a poor job of expressing it through preaching. But you have to know that the Son of God incarnated himself as a man, came into our world, died on a cro- lived a perfect life, died on a cross, did so for your sin and mine, and, believing, and rose again, and believing in his person and his work gives you eternal life and makes you a citizen of his kingdom. If you've, if you've never really trusted in Christ, acknowledge the truth of, of just those three or four sentences as I just said. You should do that today. You should do that today. And you will be a part of this great kingdom that is never going to stop expanding. And you can actually be a part of its advance. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness, its depth. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you just bring continued understanding that you enlighten and illuminate our hearts toward what's, uh, what's in this text. God, I pray if there's anyone here that's never trusted in you, that, never, that has never made Jesus their king, Lord, I pray that the power of the word would go to work on the seed of their hearts. And Lord, through their death, you would bring them to life. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place. Lord, as we now go to the Lord's table and take communion, God, I pray that you would bless these final few moments of our service. And God, may the gospel be rich and clear through our celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.